and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian, and Dan's here with me. We're back, Brian. We, this, we can't escape this month. Just when we thought we were out. We're continuing our discussion from the last time we sat down, which was just a day or two ago, because I paired for my selections The Room from 2003 with the real movie about making the movie called The Disaster Artist from 2017, and so that's what we're here to talk about now. I'm actually glad that we are kind of doing it as a two-parter, because I had some thoughts after our discussion the last time. We had, during the last time we spoke, uh, Dan asked me if I saw a lot of myself in Tommy Wiseau, and maybe my reaction was a little strange. And so I've thought about that a little more, especially because this pick is coming on the heels of me talking about the film Ed Wood, which ranks pretty highly on my favorite movies. And I want to dig into a little bit uh, how the films Disaster Artist and Ed Wood are similar, how they might be different and how they present their central characters. I think that's definitely fair. And just to expand on what I meant by that is like, I don't know, his story of a, a person who follows his own creative vision. And I think, and even when to others, they might not understand it. And uh, I'm curious how you think Ed Wood versus The Disaster Artist, because I've read some contemporary reviews of The Disaster Artist, and a lot of them drew that comparison. It was far, You're far from the first person to see those, those two in basically the same light. And so I'm kind of curious what your take on it is. Right. So I think that's fair that Tommy is also a character who is driven to pursue his creative vision. But I think the presentation is different of how Ed is depicted and how Tommy is depicted, because Ed is able to like mysteriously, inexplicably draw a circle of friends around him to join for the journey. Whereas in Tommy's case, it's pretty much just Greg who falls into this whirlpool and everybody else is Tommy throwing money at a problem. Like this, this would never happen if Tommy didn't have this unknown, boundless source of wealth that he can draw upon, which I mean is interesting too, because it raises the theme that money can't buy you happiness. Like, you can grease the wheels financially as much as you want and accomplish any project, but it's not going to make people like you. And I, that, I think, is the key word, that Tommy is presented much less likably than Ed Wood. I agree. They call him an ogre. They call him multiple times a Frankenstein. The villain. 
Right. And I, I think the word is is they, they should say vampire more often. That's that's how Tommy seems to view himself as, as a vampire. And I think that actually is kind of apt that he lives alone in his castle and has a lot of money and nobody knows how old they are. And Oh, good call. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, I mean, we're obviously going to talk through the disaster artist here in a second, but I think the disaster artist is made from a place of mocking and derision and just bewilderment in a negative sense towards its central character. Whereas Ed Wood manages to find someone who is renowned for being a terrible director and turns that into something genuinely thoughtful and inspiring. Not to say that it like makes the argument that his creations are secretly good and there's a lot of fun irony in Ed Wood and that his movies are very bad and he's unfazed by that. But just that it kind of takes the idea of someone who creates in spite of that and uses it as a means of self-actualization and connection to others and achieving some sort of like enlightenment rather than just a fool's errand that drives him even further from the people that he was trying to connect with in the first place, reach out to be one of in the first place. Sure. So I'm going to let us move on from this. But I just want to say, I don't think I am an ogre. (laughs) That's the sort of determination that really needs to be made by a third party observer. So I'm going to let other people make that judgment. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you're not an ogre. That's my vote as well. Oh, good. I am confident I am more articulate than Tommy Wiseau. (laughs) Your English is better. Yeah. Yes, of course, I can't speak whatever other language is his native tongue. And you have more self-awareness than him, for sure. Yes. So, Dan, let's talk about The Disaster Artist. As I mentioned last time, I read the book beforehand, and this movie definitely takes a lot from that. I listened to that audio book in late 2015. I'll recommend it again, because anytime. Greg does the Tommy voice is funny. Like, you don't get the same experience reading the sentence, and then Tommy waved his arms and made a sound like woo, 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 (laughs) until you hear Greg say, made a sound like woo, woo, woo. That's pretty funny. Just certain things text alone cannot convey. I was wondering, Dan, does James Franco's, like, pack of Seth Rogen and Associates... Do they have a name? Are they the something pack? That is a good question. I guess this is the same proximate sphere of comedians as the Judd Apatow group. I mean, Judd Apatow actually appears in this, so I think we can say with confidence that he is plugged into this group. I usually think of a handful of other people being more in the the Apatow group, but I think that does have a name might be Frat Pack. Yeah. Because there's the Adam Sandler group where it's like Adam Sandler and Paul Blart and David Spade. And like, that's one circle. Maybe it doesn't. Because now that I'm looking at... So I was going to say it's the Frat Pack. But now that I'm looking at the Frat Pack, I think that's like one generation before that group. So Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you call Apatow's group. 
But I think the the origin point of this is Freaks and Geeks. Right, because that had both Rogan and Franco, right? And Apatow. And Jason Siegel. And Lizzie Kaplan is alleged to have appeared in the pilot, but that scene probably got cut. And others who would who would recur in the extended Judd Apatow universe, of which this is kind of a spin-off. Right. And we talked forgetting Sarah Marshall, that was Apatow, right? Produced by Apatow, yep. Okay. Yeah. Because in the opening of this movie, there's interviews, like a, a little mini documentary of just celebrities talking about the room, almost like it's one of those shows on on the stupid daytime TV where they have people reacting to like viral videos. But there are some huge names in this this little opener. Like so Kristen Bell is there from Forgetting Sarah Marshall, but also Lizzie Kaplan, as you said. And who are some of the other people we see? We see Adam Scott, who gives the memorable monologue. Now, I think in the six years since this, Adam Scott's star has risen and risen. Like he recently starred on a prestige TV show called Severance that has him getting Emmy buzz for his appearance on the show Severance. But yeah, I mean, obviously Lizzie Kaplan and Adam Scott, two of my all time favorites. And then who else is there? J.J. Abrams is there. Jeez. There's like a lot of people. And it's really rapid fire. And beyond this segment, a lot of like known faces are going to pop up in this movie. So many. One thing I thought was funny is, um, so in this little opening bit, they make the claim that people will remember the room, but they won't remember the best picture winner from 10 years ago. But it's an odd year to make that claim because 10 years before that, if I counted correctly, when I was scrolling through my Oscars, would have been No Country for Old Men, which I would say has endured as a popular film much more than many other Best Picture winners. But that's around the same time you also have like the artist and ones that people aren't playing that often. I didn't I haven't heard much uh, artist reclamation buzz. Right. I saw some clip. I'm trying to remember who it was that said it. I think it was Ebert. Ebert or Siskel or somebody. But they said, who has seen Passage to India other than the director more than once? <laughs> Just as an example of, you know, some art film, some some acclaimed critically that doesn't necessarily endure. Right. Or at least like a prestigious awards film. Yeah. Right. It probably wasn't Ebert. Join our Discord. I'll find the clip. I'll drop it and see who said it. But it was it was one that I remembered. And you can join our Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. But when the movie proper starts, it opens with Greg Sestero, played here by James Franco's brother, Dave Franco. A.K.A. the guy who pees his pants in Superbad. Actually, he doesn't even pee his pants on screen. He gets teased for having peed his pants 11 years ago. <laughs> People don't forget. So that adds kind of an interesting dynamic to this movie, that it's all about the relationship between Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero, but doubly about having them be brothers, I think. That's interesting, yeah. 
just from a, a perspective of the casting looking like the the source individual, which is often how biopics like this are evaluated, at least in part. I didn't think Dave Franco looked that much like Greg Sestero. No, I wanted to say that is that Tommy, I mean, uh, the guy playing Tommy, James Franco, I think a fine Tommy. He does the voice pretty well. Doesn't quite have the ghoulish look, but most of the time he's got this like the gross long black hair covering his a lot of his face and just his performance conveys it gets it across. This is Tommy. And sufficient like makeup making him look pallid and goblin-esque when James Franco is like a traditionally handsome roguish type guy. Right. But Dave Franco as Greg, it's like counter to what you usually see in a biopic where they cast somebody who's like way more handsome than the real person. In this case, the real person is more handsome, I would say. Greg Sestero, like... As we see, he's going to actually get some roles pretty early on when he ends up in Hollywood and it starts out as like male model gigs. So when I showed my mom the pictures of me with Tommy and Greg, she's like, wow, that guy is supernaturally good looking. That was her phrase. <laughs> and so I, I guess Greg Sestero strikes at least some people that way. He's definitely a model looking guy. He, he definitely looks like Hollywood handsome, whereas Dave Franco has kind of slight weirdo energy to him just a little bit. But you buy that these two guys, Dave and James, know each other really well. Definitely. When the movie starts, Greg is 19 years old and he's an aspiring actor who lives in San Francisco. It opens with him at an acting class. So he's been coming to this acting class for a while, but he's still shy, reserved. And so he's captivated when Tommy takes the stage and gives this unhinged delivery of what is pretty much the scene where Marlon Brando is yelling Stella, which I think is what? Streetcar Named Desire? Mm-hmm. Tennessee Williams. But the effect is Tommy just writhing on the stage going, Stella! Over and over. I like this moment uh, where Greg sees some spark in Tommy because I think most people would see that and be like, who is this utter wacko? This deranged quasi-human on stage. <laughs> but no, Greg Sestero's like, okay, there's something here. There's something, I don't know what it is, but there's something here. <laughs> uh, yeah that's like the key to the whole film is greg's weird appreciation for tommy's energy because tommy is fearless tommy has no reservations nothing holds tommy back and at this specific time in his life that's what greg is looking for and so inspired by this unflappable confidence Greg confronts Tommy after the, the class and he says, we should do a scene together and kind of befriends him. And we get the sense that nobody has ever done this before, because why would you? <laughs> like, why, why do you go up to Tommy and say, yeah, man, you've got the thing. You have the it factor. He has an it factor. 
I don't know if it's the it factor. <laughs> yeah, but it in the sense of like a scary clown. <laughs> and so they go and they hit up like a diner to practice their acting scene. And Tommy says, okay, let's do it now while they're surrounded by people. And he pulls out this like random, it's like ancient Greek gods or something. And just, you know, weird, unnatural, Shakespearean, histrionic dialogue and hands it to Greg and says, let's do this now. And stands up at the table and is shouting lines. So very clear that Tommy has no conventional sense of or appreciation for social boundaries or social cues. But Greg is still admiring of this passion. He may not quite be there yet, but he's aspiring to to break in. And so, yeah, appreciates this to a degree. While they're kind of becoming friends, Greg makes an offhand remark that he admires James Dean. And they watch some James Dean movies together. And Greg happens to say, you know... I've always wanted to visit the crash site where James Dean died. And Tommy says, okay, let's go. So I looked at a map and where it is, is like almost perfectly halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles. That's kind of poetic. And it's not very close. Therefore it's like hundreds of miles either way, which Greg points out and Tommy says, well, whatever we'll do it. And this is the moment when I saw the most comparison to Ed Wood, because it's like, if you want to do something, why let a long drive be an obstacle? Like, how, how long is... It's only a five-hour drive uh, in the big scheme of your life. Like, if this is important to you, just go and do it. Yeah, if it's symbolic to you. I definitely have moments where I look back and I'm like, I could have just done the thing and I didn't do the thing. Like... When I lived in Virginia Tech, I was like an eight-hour drive from where um, the, I think it's called House of Blues, where Chuck Berry, the guitarist, like for the last couple of years of his performing life, he would like once a month on, I think it was Saturdays, he would perform at the House of Blues. And when I was in college, I it occurred to me that like the that, that day, that night, he was performing. And if I got in my car and drove, I could have gone. And then for the rest of my life, I could have said, I saw the guy who invented rock and roll perform live. Like I could have told my grandkids got that. It would have been like saying that I bet Mayan aliens or something like that. You know, like it just, it would be an insane thing that, that happened, but I didn't do it. And I have a little bit of regret for that. I mean, you know, why, why, why not? You know, but that's also okay. Cause you, you can't do every single thing. Another one from a similar era was a guy in my dorm said, hey, Wendy from Wendy's is doing a rare public meet and greet as the original Wendy's is being shut down. I want to go. Does anyone want to go with me? And nobody stood up and said yes. So we ended up not going. And what if I had done that, Ryan? What if I had gone and met Wendy? <laughs> well, you know which one of those I would have gone to. But I think it's pretty funny, the, the gap between... Meet Chuck Berry and meet Wendy. <laughs> I don't know. They're both legends, both icons. Pivotal pop culture icons. 
in different ways. <laughs> but only one got the call at the end of Back to the Future. That's true. At the crash site for at the crash site for James Dean, they make a pinky promise that they are going to stick to their dreams of becoming actors and never be swayed. I also like Tommy says they're looking at the pictures of James Dean like on the chain link fence where he died and he says that will be us one day <laughs> and Dave says well I hope we're not dead on the side of a road pretty much everything Tommy says he just says it like with the wrong tense or like a slightly odd syntactic structure and like for example when he does the pinky promise he says something like give me your pinky or something like that like not just let's make a pinky promise, but he says it in some funny way. I liked that the subtitles on the film preserved however he said it. Just the, the complete bizarre grammar. Yeah, incomplete sentences. It's It stayed true to his line delivery. Also, when Tommy's driving Greg around, he's got a really fancy car. So signs that he's got more money than he's letting on and never explained and he even says don't talk about me like if people ask you about my life don't tell them things definitely playing up the vampire vibes and that's sort of a hallmark of this whole story the book the movie like if you're reading a tell-all memoir you expect to be told all you pick up this book saying, well, there's a weird guy. This is the story behind him. So I'm going to buy this to learn some things. And if that's your goal, you will be disappointed and frustrated because few questions about Tommy's origins are answered here, though you do get the story of the film. So I don't know if now is the time to interject this, but uh, apparently it's a little bit less of a mystery today than it was when the room was filmed. So uh, have you read much about it since then? It almost destroys the mystique. The book is interesting because like the final chapter after everything has happened, Greg is like, here's what I think the deal is. And I'm not really sure what his sources on the stuff that he says in that chapter are, but what have you learned? So apparently he has told multiple people at different times that he made it from real estate investments. Basically, he had some money from when he was in Europe and then he bought big real estate things and then sold it at a big profit, like in the order of seven or eight figures. So he's not, this movie would have you believe that like he is like an immortal who has inherited wealth like from centuries ago, you know? Right. So he's not a vampire, just a capitalist. Yeah, a different kind of vampire. Yep. So Tommy says, okay, Greg, we both want to be actors. And if you want to be an actor, you really need to be in L.A. So let's go to L.A. And, you know, Greg has reservations. He says, well, you'd need to get an apartment. You need to really kind of take steps to establish yourself. Tommy says he already has an apartment there and has had it all along. So he's just been paying for this empty apartment, essentially. But he's got one in San Francisco and L.A. as well. 
So he says, come and move down with me to my L.A. apartment. Remember, Greg is 19, so he's still living at home. And his mom is not on board with this plan. And the mother is played by Megan Mullally. What did you think of this performance? Part of the problem is when you have so many iconic comedy actors, sometimes I just see them as them, you know, not necessarily their character. But I am 100% on the mom's side. Like, this sounds like a cult from the outside. And, like, even from the inside, it's still a little bit like a cult. It's like, you know, uh, one thing I think the movie does is it, it tries to, like, do some wink-wink, nudge-nudge, homoerotic vibes with uh, Tommy towards Greg. Right. Well, it's like an old man is going to invite you to come live in his apartment. Exactly, yeah. And free of free of rent. So one assumes there could be strings attached. Sure. So, <laughs> yeah, don't don't move in with this this guy, <laughs> especially because he's not a charmer when like they, they very briefly interact and he's the opposite of a charmer. And he says something like she's weird or something like that, like to where she can hear it. <laughs> At the same time, she's standing in the way of the plot progression. And I think any time that a character does that, it's it's possible to be irritated with them like Skylar in Breaking Bad. Uh, even if they raise some like reasonable objections, it's like no, I want to get on, I want to get on the road, uh, and so I saw a little bit of like the mom from Boogie Nights. Okay, because it's the it's the young dude who's got this shot to go live with the producer, and she's basically saying you're not talented, you're nobody. This is a stupid dream stick to real pursuits and Mark Wahlberg shouting back you don't know you don't know what I can do I'm good I've got good things while well, she's ripping his posters down it doesn't quite get to that heightened level here this scene comes and goes in disaster artist pretty quickly but I was seeing echoes of that I was also much more team mom on uh, the disaster artist <laughs> Burt Reynolds, I guess, more charming, right? Than Tommy. Yeah. And a less of like a just a freakazoid who <laughs> terrifies you when you first interact with him. <laughs> and another mystery about Tommy, his age. He'll never tell anybody how old he is. He always says, I'm your age, which is quite a defense. But they get to L.A. and they're putting out feelers to get acting gigs and Greg actually encounters some success. Like, he manages to get an agent and book some parts. And it's actually, like, downplayed in this movie, some of the things that Greg Sestero did. Like, I mean, it's not huge, but in the book he talks about, he was in the movie Puppet Master 4. And he was, like the lead like there's this established character in the puppet master films who is, he like makes the killer puppets i i guess he's the puppet master i haven't actually watched him i mean think about robert uh in our discussion of robert uh the buzzed on movies hosts mentioned that in the sequels there's like this character built up who, who like existed in like the world war ii days and was responsible for creating the evil doll it sounds like that's kind of a takeoff on this puppet master character. 
Okay. And in Puppet Master 4, or it could be another one, I think it was 4, you get a similar thing where it's a flashback, and whereas in, like, the original ones, he's an old guy, this is Puppet Master Origins, and young Puppet Master is played by Greg Sestero. So I would think of that as a a fairly meaty part. But while that's going on, and he's actually getting some jobs, Tommy is hitting a brick wall. Tommy is Tommy. Tommy. And other people don't see the shine the way Greg does. This movie frequently made me deeply uncomfortable with Tommy either like tanking an audition or the worst is when he approaches the producer character. I guess it's Judd Apatow playing himself. Oh, that was Judd Apatow. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about that scene. Yeah. So basically Tommy is eating dinner by himself And it seems like Tommy does a lot of things just by himself. And he sees Judd Apatow from across the room and he approaches him. He's like, first of all, he's it's it's still his voice. So it's not just like a normal thing. It's like this this strange way of speaking. You are great Hollywood producer. I have talent. I can make it. And it's like, I don't know what 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 he's expect what Tommy's expecting him to do. I mean, I guess a lot of people have these stories like Robert Zemeckis, when he quote unquote made it, he basically like stormed into Steven Spielberg's office and like was like, I want to make movies, man. And it somehow worked for Robert Zemeckis. So, you know, there are like histories of these kind of encounters happening. But just watching it unfold, Tommy, like saying "I I can make it where Judd Apatow playing a normal person, not like a heightened character at all. It's just like. I'm eating dinner. Go away. And then Tommy doesn't take no for an answer. And he starts doing this. I think it's from Hamlet, uh, a monologue and so loud and like obnoxious. And it's to like, be or not to be. <laughs> and then Judd Apatow kind of loses it and starts putting him down and says, even if you have talent, it's one in a million. And for you, it is not happening. Yeah, it's it's tough to sit through. Right, he says, it will never happen for you, not in a million years. And Tommy says, what about after that? <laughs> Definitely heightening the vampire vibes. Yeah. It's, what do they say in Dumb and Dumber? So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> like one in a hundred? More like one in a million. So you're saying there's a chance. Great movie. <laughs> I thought you hadn't seen that one, Brian. I, I've just seen a couple clips. Most of which you sent me. (laughs) Hey, big gulps, huh? Well, talk to you later. (laughs) And we probably discussed it, but I imagine that part of the like the subtext, the gimmick of that is that if an actor, an extra talks, you got to pay him more. Uh, So that guy wasn't supposed to talk. So Jim Carrey approaches him, goes on a rant about a. Big gulps and then walks off stage and the extra can't do anything about it except just stand there. Right. Oh. We landed on the moon. I think if we ever did an episode of that, it would just be me quoting it over and over again for an hour. <laughs> so pretty much the uh, that thing you do experience. Yeah. Although my brother, Will, who's appeared on the pod, said, man, you miss like he gave me a few couple great quotes that I missed. I was like, it I, I quoted a lot of things on there. It's not like I didn't <laughs> quote the movie when we were talking about it. <laughs> yeah, we got to think about anything that we missed and save it if we do a special 150th coming up. 
in the midst of Greg kind of leaving Tommy behind in his, you know, small level success, he's he's working. Greg also hits it off with Allison Bree, who plays like a bartender, and they they start up a relationship. A.K.A. Dave Franco's IRL wife. Really? Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. They announced that they were married at the debut of The Disaster Artist. Oh, huh. Okay. But they, they had been publicly seen in a relationship and I think engaged prior to that. Nice. Sometimes it can be it can be fun when they do that. It's it's more fun when the actors are really in a relationship, but they act like they hate each other or that their relationship is somehow illicit or they can't be together. Uh, like in Always Sunny, Charlie is really married to the waitress who he's just relentlessly stalking in the show. And Dee is married to Mac. And like part of it is that they just are always joshing each other. They like, especially Mac is always like insulting Dee. Mm-hmm. To me, the the strangest one of these ever comes from Arrested Development, where there's a subplot in the third season where Michael thinks he's found a secret Bluth sister, N. Bluth, who is cast as Justine Bateman, who is his real life sister. Except it turns out the whole time she's not actually a sister, but she is a prostitute. And this whole time she thinks that Michael is hiring her. So it adds the weird undercurrent of that. And yeah. <laughs> There's some video. Uh, it's like a PSA from the 80s. I forget what it's for. I want to say it's like how to use computers or something. But it's hosted by young Justin and Justine Bateman. <laughs> okay. It could be. I I think I'm con I'm combining it in my head with. There's one from like the early '90s of the Friends cast explaining the internet. So I I don't remember if computers have anything to do with the Justin and Justine Bateman one. It might be like a don't do drugs thing. I think it's Jason Bateman. Although now I wish it was Justin Bateman because then it would oh. be Justin and Justine. Okay, but it's yes. Jason. It's Jason and James Franco. So I'm just I'm mixing up the J names. <laughs> it's okay. I gotta I gotta get the names mixed up sometime. Call it the Dan special if you get at least three or four. Yeah. <laughs> so Tommy's getting frustrated. He's not getting work. He's starting to resent that Greg is and that Greg's building a relationship and kind of leaving him in the dust. But Tommy has money to throw at this problem. And so Greg kind of off the cuff says, man, you know, what would be great is if we made our own movie. And Tommy says, yes, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and so he sequesters himself off in his little cave with, I think he's got a typewriter, like actually a typewriter. And he bangs out the script to the room. And the scene where he comes back and hands Greg the finished script of the room has a power to it that I really love. It struck me now that I've watched Oppenheimer that it's the same energy there. <laughs> How so? Because 
It's like they they've stolen fire from the gods. It's this is a thing that's going to change the world. The genie is just about to be out of the bottle. And once you let it out, you can't put it back. <laughs> what do you think is a greater detriment to the history of humanity, Brian? The atomic bomb or the room? Hard to say. I mean, the bomb was only dropped twice. How many times has the room screen? <laughs> But you can almost see the same Killian Murphy look in Greg's eyes as he reads this script. Suddenly the weight of the world is on him. And Tommy says, you will be Mark. You're going to play Mark in the room. So then the bulk of the movie is them making the room and just little anecdotes behind the scenes of this film getting made that we talked about when we last met. And what else can you say about the, the process of this coming to light, Dan? Yeah, I, I think another interesting thing is we don't quite see it right away. But one component of making the disaster artist is that the cast has to effectively make the room also. So we see like recreations of iconic moments and scenes from the room, but like they're making of. And it's I would say in general, it doesn't paint a positive light on Tommy Wiseau. There's moments where his like effort attitude, we'll just do it how we want to do it is kind of appealing. But then he also like, I don't know, comes off as kind of menacing too, which is something you kind of get just from watching the room itself, the way that he like writes his female characters and, and such. But it also carries over in the, when we see him making it too, it's like he, he doesn't have what they call a closed set for the sex scenes where basically everybody's just kind of hanging around and we get what is, I think intended to be a, a visual punchline of like the, the, the dong protector, the penis protector, like when they you film sex scenes hanging off of James Franco as he's walking around and shouting at people and stuff, but also just lots of incidents of like him not knowing how to do stuff that's played for a punchline. Like one that actually made me laugh Oh, it's great because Seth Rogen plays one of like the script supervisor. And it's it's never not funny when Seth Rogen is like, couldn't we just blank? And the answer is no, because we got to do it the Tommy way. <laughs> and what the best one is they're like, wow, this uh, this set looks a lot like the alleyway outside. Couldn't we have just filmed it outside? And Tommy, played by James Franco, says, no, it's a real Hollywood movie, <laughs> which like is, is pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah. So they go first to this equipment rental house where film crews rent their cameras because cameras are really expensive and then they can be returned and used on another project. And Tommy says, yeah, we want to buy the camera. So it's unusual. It's going to be really expensive. But he does it. And then they ask, OK, do you want to shoot on film or on video, digital video? And he says, yes. <laughs> So he buys a full camera equipment set for both film and digital, which they then say, you're going to also need like a separate crew for each option because people learn them as distinct disciplines and you're going to need them both there operating simultaneously. And the gist is money is no object here. He's just always going to be able to throw more money at the problem. And so he gets professional people on board 
but they're also like always going to be a little in the dark because they're being led by an amateur. And as a result, they're always going to privately think, I know how to do this and, and probably be correct. But that's always going to be the source of conflict. And this was kind of frustrating for me because it's like, I want to see, there was, I know this is not how it happened in real life, but like had Tommy or even Greg used this as an experience where like, oh, hey, if you collaborate, if you bring people in, you learn from them, you let them do what they want, let them have some ownership of it as well as you, then everything is better off. You learn more, you're happier and stuff. But that's like exactly what doesn't happen here. That's a great point. You could actually use this to be networking a little more productively, probably, and just compassionately. Or at least like give it the feeling of like a let's put on a show, let's get the gang together type vibe where like everybody ends up bringing something of themselves to the project, you know? Right. The two most prominent crew members are Seth Rogen, who plays the script supervisor named Sandy. And he essentially turns into the real director because Tommy is starring in the movie. So he can't be directing all the time and also arguably can't direct. So Sandy, yeah, steps up and is often the one he's like, let's do it maybe this way. Yeah. Was that something he talked about in the book about how he sort of became the director? I think so. There's definitely, yeah, people kind of having to step up and take charge. The other one we see a lot of is the cinematographer played by Paul Shear who's one of this this group that they like pop up all over the place. Like in Gravity Falls, he voices the guy who operates the Rockafire band. And um, another guy. So he Paul Shear plays Andre, who's a character in the TV show, The League, about the fantasy football league. And another character in that show is, I think the character in the show's name is like Rafi or something. He's, uh, he's like a, Indian guy uh but he that actor pops up all over the place too and he's in this movie as the guy who rents the equipment I think it's Jason Mantzoukas okay there you go the guy who has like kind of the wild hair and beard right looking back that was a pretty stacked cast in in the league because you had Jason Mantzoukas Paul Shear, and Nick Kroll who have all gone on to appear in like a bajillion things right often kind of overlapping walking in each other's circles but um, Mansukas in the league at one point, he's got a line. He says, I've gone kosher. No more eating live pig for this guy. <laughs> so, yeah, a long sequence of them creating these scenes and tensions just gradually rising higher between Tommy and the experienced crew. And it's not just that he doesn't know what he's doing. It's that, like Dan said, he's mean about a lot of stuff and aggressive and denies actors things that they would have on other sets like water. He's not giving anybody water, so... When your needs aren't met, hostilities rise. I thought this was also kind of inconsistent, because he wants it to be a real Hollywood picture, but, like, he also seems to be skimping on that. Like, it would have been more interesting tension if he was bootstrapping everything, and that was, like, another compromise he had to make. But here, he's, he's throwing money at everything, except apparently air conditioning. And, you know, the, the bottles of water, you get like 
at Costco, you get like a, a 48 pack of them for $7 or something, you know? <laughs> yep. As a construction worker, that's something we always had was just packs and packs of the bottled water. And one of the trailers for this movie was just the scene where Tommy is acting for the first time. And it's the, I did not hit her scene. And he can't remember the line. And the trailer was just, you know, a minute and a half of line. What is line? It's not true. I did not hit her. I did not. It's bullshit. <laughs> oh, hi, Mark. When you hear Rogan read it, it's so funny. It's like a standalone SNL skit, basically. <laughs> he walks out. He says, I hit her. No. <laughs> Do you want to change the line? So, I mean, just watching that scene, yeah, it stands alone. You can watch it, and you'll know whether or not you want to watch this movie. Then finally, like, Greg is the one who's always able to keep things a little on track, because he knows how to talk to Tommy. And in this case, he goes up and he gives Tommy a prop, the random bottle of water that he has there. And that, like, lets Tommy focus. But even Greg is starting to have misgivings partially through the influence of Alison Brie because she plants the idea in his head, you know, what if this movie ends up being bad? What if it's just not good? How could there be any question? <laughs> How is that in doubt? My, like, I feel like everyone involved is like, Ugh, I guess you got to earn a paycheck some way. <laughs> but that kind of pierces the veil for Greg for the first time. He, he like, takes a step back, and it really happens when he's on the set and he sees Tommy intentionally ignoring the advice of the industry figures. Like, they'll tell him one thing, like, this would be the right way to do it, and Tommy says no. And Greg begins to wonder whether or not this might not be the best move for his career. I have a question. Does the breast cancer bit come back? No, it's a twist. I thought that one was pretty funny. <laughs> like saying it's a twist. That, that's not really what it means to have a twist. Just throw in a random bit of information. Like a character has breast cancer and it never gets revisited. And yeah, that scene where he's prowling around in the nude with the little like tea cozy on his penis. Uncomfortable. Yeah. Tommy has his own private bathroom that is on the set, but it's like in a tent. It's just a weird, like, not a porta potty. It's like a plumbed-in bathroom, but under a, a canopy that he says only he can use. And as the crew starts to hate him, it's like a mark of honor if they can get in there and, and use his bathroom without him knowing. Yeah, Paul Shear has a look of pride on his face when he steps out of the, the bathroom tent. So... We didn't talk too much about the rooftop scenes in the room, but they're shot in green screen. Like, they've got a set of up-to-waist level of this railing around the roof, and then everything else surrounding is green screen. And on the one hand, it's not the worst green screen. Like, the people who edited it in know how to key well, but it doesn't look natural at all. It's like outer spacey. You know they're not somewhere real. Yeah, you're a little more generous than I would have been, but yeah. Also, the the doorway to get on and off the roof is in this 
little corrugated aluminum structure that is not how tall a real doorway would be. <laughs> and so everybody has to duck in and out of it. It's like five feet off the ground. And it's just so weird because they're going in and out of it all the time. And it's like, it's like Alice in Wonderland or something. Like you're entering a world that's not real by going through this tiny door. The room is is a fantasy. Yeah, maybe that's what the room is. It's like a place inside the mind. <laughs> it's heavily featured in this scene where he's trying to get the... I did not hit her! Just going in and out of the, sh the shack, the sheet metal shack. The scene that hurts me the most in this movie, that I, I don't use the phrase cringe super often. Maybe that's a glass house thing. But the one that really makes me cringe is Allison Brie is able to hook Greg up. They they run into Brian Cranston, and this is in the book. So this is Brian Cranston playing himself. And it's set in like the early 2000s, like turn of the millennium. And so he's starring in Malcolm in the Middle at the time. And their friends, him and Alison Brie, are like in a yoga class together or something. They just happen to know each other. And he says, well, you know, Greg, you've got a nice, robust beard there. And we've got an episode of Malcolm coming up where you could play a lumberjack character. And you just show up tomorrow and you can be on the show. So great. Golden ticket. This is amazing. This is incredible. And all he's got to do is miss a day of shooting and have a beard. <laughs> Tommy, who, of course, has come to resent Greg making real inroads, says, well, you've already obligated to my project, which is in production. So I can't just let you go. Oh, and by the way, also, tomorrow is the day I need you to shave your beard. So Greg has to make the choice is he going to do this thing for tommy that he said he would do or is he going to go do something that would actually help him progress and he opts to stay loyal to tommy and this is just the most painful shaving scene i've ever seen of him shaving off the beard <laughs> it's like it's more painful and violent to the audience than the shaving scenes in sweeney todd it's like how brutal it is but I will say my wife, who I watched both The Room and The Disaster Artist with, did the, the Leo DiCaprio pointing meme on this because as we were watching The Room, it didn't process in my head that his facial hair situation changed throughout the movie. And she kept saying, I think he used to have different facial hair, like he used to have some. I was like, oh, you might be right. I can't remember. But she said, I knew it. I knew that that was something that had happened. <laughs> it changes at the tuxedo scene. The scene when he walks in and everybody's in tuxedos. Possibly his wedding. Yes. <laughs> Baby face. Oh, another thing that's in the book that I don't think ever comes up in the movie is that Tommy says that with the beard, Greg looks like Spartacus. So early on, he's calling him Spartacus. But then Greg Sestero points out that Spartacus in the movie doesn't have a beard. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, 
just that he keeps calling him Spartacus in the first half of the book. And that, you know, reminded we were talking Spartacus recently with that thing you do. Oh, Spartacus. <laughs> uh, the one thing that kind of undercuts the beard scene and how painful it is, is like we know from real life that Greg Sestero is not a good actor. So it's like, I don't feel like this would have been a break for him. You know, it's like, I think he was going to hit a dead end in his career if he tried to go down the conventional path. It's like in um, the Party Down, uh, there's a character named Kyle who one of the lines in one of the first episodes is he introduces himself and he's like, oh, I do some modeling, some acting. I'm in a band. And someone says, so you're in the handsome business. And I feel like Greg Sestero is the same way. He's in the handsome business. Like he doesn't have any particular talent. But like people are OK having him around because he's handsome. But that doesn't necessarily get you a star career unless you're Ryan Reynolds, maybe. But Ryan Reynolds is funny. So <laughs> Ryan you know. Reynolds in the breakout hit Taurus Trap. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think that also just being an extra on a sitcom is not a surefire path to success. But it's something. And I mean... Getting to know Brian Cranston, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Well, especially for you. Yes. Breaking Bad devotee. Mm-hmm. And hey, Malcolm is pretty good, too. I've watched a significant chunk of it. Not the whole thing, but pretty good show. I need to watch more of it. Me and my wife frequently cite the scene that we probably just watched on YouTube, but where... Brian Cranston, the dad, tries to fix something. I think it's like the sink. And then he goes outside and he encounters something else that's broken. And that so he tries to fix that, which brings him to something else. And it like just creates this chain of things that brings you back to the original thing. And we call it a Malcolm in the Middle moment when you get like brought from one thing to another thing to another thing in a chain of uh, semi-coherent train of thought almost. <laughs> There's an episode where they find like an abandoned wardrobe, just a, a wooden closet, standalone closet on the side of the road and they take it home, but then it's full of bats <laughs> and the mom is away. And so now the ha house is full of bats from this old closet and the dad is trying to lead the boys in rounding up these bats before the mother <laughs> comes home. And that was a good one. I post the scene I'm talking about to the discord not to linger on the shaving scene too long but this decision torpedoes then the relationship with Allison Brie torpedoes potentially his career although maybe it wasn't going anywhere anyway so things are grim now and also the shoot is running long yeah so I'm not sure it directly torpedoes his relationship with Amber we definitely get the vibes that that's what it is, but it's not like they immediately break up, but perhaps it's a fork in the road. If he had gone down that path, he would have stuck with Amber down the line. Maybe she just liked the beard, you know? Could be. But things are also getting tenser with the crew. They're finally like getting fed up. And so Tommy fires them. Seth Rogen and Paul Shear, they're out of there. And so then one day it's just new people are there. And he says, yeah, this is new crew. 
but they don't have too much left. They they go back up to San Francisco and they get some pickup shots of them running around in the park and throwing the football. Well, I think that's an important scene too because that's really like the breaking point between the two of them. Dave Franco's like, who are you? What's your age? Where'd your money come from? And we've known from the start that this is the one thing you don't do. You don't ask him this is details. And so it's kind of funny that like asking these basic functional questions is like what is the dividing line between them where they have the equivalent of a romantic comedy, the third act breakup. <laughs> and it's while they're lobbing the football at each other. Exactly. Yeah. An iconic thing from the room itself. Mm hmm. But they're done. What did Christian Bale say in that blow up around about 2008 that was viral in the early YouTube days? He says, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. You're a nice guy. You're a nice guy. <laughs> but professionally, we're done. <laughs> it's a great rant. And I don't know if you've ever seen it mashed up with David after dentist, but it was one of my first favorite YouTube videos. I didn't watch that one, but I did listen to the the bailout recording so many times back in the, the like, we're on a boat internet days. Black albino sheep. The film is in the can. They don't have to interact anymore. Greg goes back to his life in San Francisco. But then one day there's a billboard looming over the city with this headshot of Tommy Wiseau, which is... The poster on the DVD. I'm holding it up here in front of our Zoom meeting camera that you listeners can't see, but this is the picture, Dan. You've surely seen it if you've ever Googled the room. And what adjectives would you d use to describe this headshot, Dan? Um, Kind of uncanny. And he kind of, I think it's supposed to be a handsome headshot. He's kind of scowling, but like his head's kind of crooked and you see how kind of imbalanced and asymmetrical his faces and he, i i just don't know what he was going for was it i think it was supposed to be like tense drama like a piercing character uh deconstruction but it just ends up looking like a weirdo staring at a camera <laughs> i don't know what, what's your take brian yeah one of his eyes is slightly closed he just looks pretty out of it like it's a medical photo or something like he's just been brought into the er and they're analyzing him like they're about to shine a light in his pupils to see if he can follow it like he's been concussed or maybe he's at the dmv and they don't tell him they're about to take his picture and when he's getting his driver's license <laughs> but that's yeah that's the big banner and this is how they advertise that the project is finished and now it's going to be released into the world you're going to have to accept that this is a thing that's out there that, that people can consult and experience. So like in Ed Wood, we have the big premiere scene where everybody comes together and this is the one they'll remember me for. And it's like everybody is there. All the crew, all the actors that we've seen. Oh, by the way, Zac Efron as Chris R. Dan Janjigan. Oh my God. He's back. From High School Musical. I was so excited when it was Zac Efron. I was like, that was me doing the Leo meme. I was like, yes, there he is. <laughs> Getting to play psychotic. <laughs> and he gets some funny exchanges. He's like, oh, you're, yeah, I'm the drug dealer. And 
but he's like so intense on screen. That's the that's an interesting moment because it's like for a second you almost think this could be a real movie because like the first one they film is like with the really intense drug dealer and it is a strange scene with Denny. Uh, the what kind of money? Give me five minutes. <laughs> And this was a big moment in the book, too. I mean, I guess it's the first scene they shoot, but just he he lingers on the passion of this actor, Dan Janjigan, and how just once the floodgates are opened, he lets loose. <laughs> Another very specific moment in the book is when Tommy and Greg are at the bar and Tommy says he wants to have his own planet. And then he hands over this custom pen that has a little plastic planet at the end that says Tommy's planet on it. <laughs> so definitely some faithful moments captured. So they're at this premiere. Everybody's experiencing the room for the first time. And people are laughing. And Tommy is uncomfortable. Well, it starts with discomfort. It starts with everybody like, oh my God, like cringing through it, like suffering through it. And then they turn. Yeah. They, something, I forget what it is, but there's a, mo a breaking point where it turns into laughter and then it kind of builds and builds almost like, um, what have we talked about where there's like uncanny, the uncanniness of fake laughter? Like it's, I think it was in Sullivan's travels. We talked about it. There's a little bit of that in, uh, Mulholland drive too, or it may not be laughter there, but like unnatural smiling, but there is, there's just something slightly off putting about fake laughter. Mm -hmm. That's over the top. And apparently this is not what really happened. Apparently it took like years for this movie to be reclaimed. Like it wasn't an instantaneous thing, but from a narrative perspective, it kind of works. Exactly. Yeah. I had never heard of this before 2010 and not that I'm the authority, but I think that's really when it came to popular knowledge. It was kind of an underground thing before then. And we linger in this premiere longer than, say, in Ed Wood. In Ed Wood, you kind of get the Pee-wee's Big Adventure thing of, I don't have to watch it. I lived it. Mm -hmm. And he heads out with the girlfriend. And that one is funny because they're just about to hit play. And it's like, it's a, that's when the nuke is about to drop. It's not after the nuke is dropped. <laughs> yeah, it's walking away from the explosion. Uh, here, though, Tommy is kind of having it wash over him that people aren't receiving it the way he dreamed. So he and Greg go into the lobby and have this conversation. And I guess the takeaway is, well, you did this, Tommy. You did a thing. You set out to make a movie, and it's at least getting a response. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of agree with, like better to have done a thing and then you did it. And even if it's not what you wanted it to be, then, you know, you still did it. And the fact that it connected, I mean, there is obviously, it's like, if so, if you're being earnest and people are mocking you for your earnestness, that stings. I don't quite agree with him, like just being happy about that, but like, I at least get it, you know? So they walk back in and Tommy says, how'd you like my dark comedy? Which has kind of been how he's tried to rebrand it subsequently, that yes, you're supposed to laugh. That's what was meant all along. And we get some post-credit scripts about 
the fate of the room afterwards. And they've got like footage from various screenings where Tommy and Greg are there. So the kind of thing that I experienced and just that it's had a life on beyond its debut in a way that plenty of movies don't. Which is kind of a return to the talking heads at the beginning. And that's the disaster artist. So was there anything we missed, Dan? Things that stuck out to you? Qualities of this film? Did you watch this twice? I actually did end up watching it twice, yeah. I watched it once on my own and once with my wife. But let's see. I mean, I think you hit most of it. And I think it's interesting. As they go to the finale, they're kind of reflecting on... Did we do it? It's like, basically, we did it. But did we do it? Like, we we did it unconventionally and not in a way that people are especially proud of. But, you know, a thing was made. And I think that kind of hangs in the air a little bit. I'll share some of my overarching thoughts when we when we rate the movie. But, yeah, I don't know. I think I think you pretty much got it. Another thing is during the credits, we get some side by side comparisons of the scene from the room and their recreation, Franco and his team of the scene. And kind of interesting to see what's like identical and what isn't like some of the timing of the line deliveries is a little, a little different, but it's really close. He lingers on the, I did not a little long, I think, but a lot of it very, very similar. Man, that rooftop in the room, though, I I like it. It's like a liminal space, a space a little bit beyond reality. Uh, at one point, Peter, the psychologist, goes up there and Greg is sitting on the bricks smoking weed. And Peter says, what are you doing, man? And Mark says, I'm just sitting up here thinking, you know. <laughs> And that's what you do on the roof is you go up there and you smoke some weed and you think. What's the line? Leave your bad ideas in your pocket. Or Keep your stupid it. comments in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, one or two more stupid comments before we wrap this extended two-parter. Out of pocket. Yeah. So I wanted to reflect now here at the end of this bloated month, Dan, that has ballooned to like 10 episodes. We did it. We've talked about a whole lot of movies about making movies, particularly with a focus on things like Ed Wood and this one and the Raiders of the Lost Ark adaptation. When is a movie worth making, Dan? Like, what is the impetus and the value behind deciding to make a movie and following it through to completion? So we kind of had a conversation about this in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation episode. And then it subsequently spilled over to our Discord. We talked a little bit about it there. And I would say in general, my vision on creating things is like, you should create a movie if you want to create a movie for the purposes of the act of creation. And I would say as part of that, like getting to build and connect with people. It's like I, you, most people don't make a movie in and of themselves. Like it's, it's inherently a collaborative thing, barring like the most outrageous exceptions. You know, if you're making a real movie, you're doing it with someone and you're also like creating something. And to me, those are kind of the two pillars, the two ideals of, of making something is, is, 
you get to express yourself and not just express yourself, but have something you can point at that you've made and that you've done. And you get to connect with someone else and be a part of a vision of bringing something to life. And that's like an inherently valuable thing. I think, you know, like that's what civilization is built upon. And that's kind of, it's kind of that in micro, but I think also it kind of matters like what your objectives are and like what you're trying to achieve and like how you consider that a success. Because if you're trying to do it to be famous, to make millions of dollars, to be an influential director, like that's not really attainable to all but the 0.01% of both talent and luck, you know? And I think it's interesting to like look at those three examples. So in Ed Wood, the way that it gets framed is he just loves making things and he also loves making it as kind of like an outlet of his his inner complexities and struggles that he's dealing with. And to me, that's actually kind of an admirable thing. Like, even though I don't think Ed Wood was in real life, maybe a heroic or even that his movies are like that great. Like, I think it's fun to watch Plan 9, but like it kind of horseshoe theoried back into being memorable because it's so bad. And the same thing about The Room, you know. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, I had still have some more complex feelings about because like if you're doing it, make something else. And like, I don't know, was it actually healthy for them to like obsess over it for their entire adolescence and then even into their adulthood? I don't know, maybe not. That one I got a little bit of ambivalence about. But I think if you're going out and you're making your own thing and you're doing it because you, you love the act of creation and you think that's a way that you bring enrichment to your life. I think that that is valuable. I don't know. It's, it's complicated. And uh, I think you really have to want to do it and have to be okay with the process of doing it to do it. I'm kind of putting myself in the headspace of someone who makes the movies, you know, I think also some of the higher profile films, I think you've called them film qua films before like eight and a half also deal with these, these ideas of uh, like what what motivates filmmakers is it a purely monetary thing or or like what ends justify the means what does the result need to be in order to have made the whole enterprise worth it and i think it's an act of synthesis you know so i don't think there's any one answer on that but i don't know i'm still kind of formulating because to me it's not extrapolate making a movie into any creative endeavor. Like, why do we do this podcast? Why do I write movie reviews? Why do I write fiction? Etc. It's like, I will always be articulating why I want to do those things. There will never be one precise answer on that. And I think my vision will change over time. But what about you, Brian? I, I just kind of rambled a bit of a fairly incoherent vision of the creative process and its worth. What about you? Well, I like that. That was more than I had prepared I'm just asking the questions. Just asking questions. <laughs> and fret not, listeners, because there will be more movies, more opportunities for us to think about films and talk your ears off. But I think this has been a fun month. I appreciate, Dan, that you let us expand it out because some of these movies have been burning a hole in my pocket for a while. Couldn't keep them in there any longer. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I'm excited for what's next, too, because we're coming into October here soon. So, Dan, The Room 
and the disaster artist. I'm ready to discuss, are they good? So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess I'll go first. Do you want to do the room and then the disaster artist? I think so. Okay. So is the room good? And I've kind of talked a little bit about my thoughts on so bad it's good. Because I think it's kind of like I said, horseshoe theory. That usually applies to politics, which basically says if you're on the extreme right or the extreme left, some of your viewpoints tend to circle back to each other, like gun rights, for example, and various other things. Yeah, things like not tolerating free speech and, you know, if you have an extreme ideology, you don't want to hear anything else. Right. But I think that also can be used in other ways. And I think if a movie is so inept on normal metrics and craft of film goodness that it turns into a good comedy then it's still a good comedy, even if it's like it was intent was to be a drama or something like that. It's like, I don't know. I kind of disagree with people who do the half star plus a heart on Letterboxd. It's like, well, if it's a heart, then it's not a half star. I only give things a half star if I genuinely dislike them, you know? So I think that The Room, I think I, I said this when we talked about it last week. I think in micro, this, it's, it's a hilarious film every scene gives you some baffling line reading or like some idea stretched out to just dizzying lengths that like make it funnier and funnier like the simpsons rake gag and like in some way a plot point comes back or like or doesn't about face you know or it gets discarded and so there's lots of stuff in micro that it's just it's it's a never-ending well of treasures that said it also is held back as an overall viewing experience because it really does feel kind of gross and mean-spirited towards the women and the excessive nudity and i feel bad for some of the actors and the people involved who are like really trying to be professional it's a little different because i I don't know it's just something about these people bringing their all but they're like some combination of i don't know they're they're just in this abhorrently misconstrued product it just feels a little off to me and also like it really does drag out just like the same things over and over again like it starts to lose a little bit of it like it never fails to surprise but i don't know the ending's a little bit of a downer too so i think it's must watch if you like movies so that's kind of my baseline it is must watch you need to see this you need to know what the room is if you are an appreciator of the art of cinema because it really does give you things that you won't find anywhere else. It takes the most bland and basic drama thing and just turns it inside out and distort it into this wacko vision. If you can even call it a vision. So I'm going to give this a good because there's really, there's no one right rating. There's no, for me to go and say, is the room, what is the room? Oh, it's good. That doesn't tell you what the, the whole picture at all. There is no one proper rating. Really, it should be like a one or an eight. Like it's it's A or B, you know? But like, I'm, I'm just going to land on good because although I think it's got problems, it's it's still one that I think needs to be seen. 
For comparison, I gave Plan 9 from Outer Space a 4, which is a nearly good, and I gave Troll 2 a 6, which is very good. So I think this is in between the two of those in terms of how great it is as a viewing experience. What about George of the Jungle 2? You gave that one right a 5, I think. Yep, yep. I'd put that in the same tier. I think that one's underappreciated as a, as a great bad movie, quote-unquote bad movie. And this was the first time you'd experienced The Room, right? Actually sat down and watched it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep, it is an experience. I'm glad I could bring that experience to you. <laughs> uh, as I often am, I'm trapped by the rating that I gave Max Magician so long ago. And that has really served as a benchmark to me. I think I have to give this one a one for the room, but with some context. So it is not as hard to watch as some. like. We watched after last season. That was very hard to watch. For me, the five-hour documentary was very hard to watch. The room is breezy compared to that. Like you said, something to latch onto at just about any moment, although there is a lot of repetition. That said, there's just not as much genre flavor or variety as you get in other best worst movies like Plan 9 no space aliens, no pie pan flying saucers or zombies or anything in this. Troll 2, I would also give a six. Maybe Troll 2 needs to have an episode at some point. That one just, it sucks me in a little more. Like, I just appreciate the the zany characters in Troll 2 and the the world, the goblins. Just less here overall in the room. But... You can't ignore Tommy Wiseau. You, you gotta know Tommy. Like Dan just said, I think, yeah. Track this one down if you haven't. And form your own opinions. And then put your stupid comments on our Discord. <laughs> You're free to take them out of your pocket. Right. We're, we're a, a space for, for sharing your thoughts. One last the room observation I didn't get to share last week. So if you're watching the room and you leave it on through the credits, which I did because like my wife and I were just sitting there with our mouths open, like wondering who the people were who made this and you get kind of towards the very end of it. And one of the last line items is craft service LA and SF fast food, which we were like, is that a company? No, I think he literally just like went to McDonald's and brought McDonald's to the set from LA and San Francisco. So I thought that was a hilarious thing to have on the craft service line, LA and SF fast food. So like, that's what we did when we made this movie. We ate fast food. By the way, actors don't like when you do that. Like there's a whole uh, expectation of what craft services is going to be. And it's pretty specific. And if you don't do that, it's a hallmark of amateurishness. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. I'd have a lot to learn if I went out to Hollywood. If we made our own movie, Brian. That's probably the best thing about filmmaking is that it's like expected that everybody is going to eat well and you can pretty much have food anytime, all the time. I think what that grew out of was shooting on location. Like they didn't want people taking lunch breaks and days could run long. And so there's just always food at hand. Interesting. On topic, though, you mentioned things going on during the credits. After the disaster artist credits, 
there's a cameo from Tommy himself. Oh, there was a post credit scene? Yeah, post credit scene, and it's James Franco as Tommy at a party, and the real Tommy walks up, playing like some other character, but still with all the Tommy-isms. <laughs> I can't believe I missed that. I have to go watch that. And James Franco says, what kind of weird friends does the Greg have about Tommy? So it's it's kind of humorous. And I'm also wondering, did Greg appear in, in it at all? That's a good question. We might have to look that up. So he seemed like more of a, a surefire appearance. Right, it's his story. He's very much at the center of it. So then, the disaster artist, Dan, is it good? Two lead-in thoughts, and I know I've let this my thoughts run long here. One is, go back and, if you didn't, go back and listen to our episode of The Room. I gave some contextual thoughts on the fact that James Franco is well-known as a creep in the post-Me Too movement and has basically been shunned from Hollywood. So that has been addressed, even though it wasn't in this episode. Um, second thing is, and I, I don't know where to put this thought. I probably could have put it when we were kind of wrapping up the, our month thoughts. But one thing that struck me, and I think this is true only of me between the two of us, not true of you, is even as I love movies, I love watching movies, but I've never wanted to make movies. Like I've never really had the drive to make movies. So I don't know what it, why that is. It's like when I read books, I do want to write books. That makes me want to write books. When I play games I like, that makes me want to make games myself. But for whatever reason, I've just never had the the calling to make a movie. I don't know why. Maybe that's one thing I'll reflect on. And well, that's a topic that could come up if we ever watch another movie about making movies. Why do I like movies but never have had the urge to make one? And so in some ways... Like I project the themes of this month onto my other creative endeavors. So as for the disaster artist, I feel like this movie was made because some people thought that James Franco did a good Tommy Wiseau impression. And also like he and his buddies thought that the room was like the funniest thing. And they read this book and thought this book was great. And we're like, all right, that's that's a movie there. And so, like, I don't know, a movie based on a pretty good, but like still not especially deep impression that it has moments. It's more funny than insightful, but it's not that funny. It's it's pretty funny. But like, I don't know, how can you out funny the room? It's like the making of the room. It's just not as funny as the room itself, you know, and I don't know. I also couldn't shake the ookiness of the just Tommy being an unpleasant person much of the time. And like, I don't know, not opening up at the, the point in the story when he should have brought people in, he just became more and more of an island. And that kind of coupled with a little bit of the James Franco thing, but also more like, I don't know, I think it wasn't a pleasant experience for me of making this movie for a lot of the people who made it. And so that kind of leaves a sour taste there. Like, out of all the people, probably Greg and Tommy had the best time making it. And it's their perspective, you know. There's something that's kind of mean-spirited about the whole thing. But it is funny, and it's 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 easy to watch. And the cast, it's always funny, fun to watch people of this caliber, people who are this funny, riffing on stuff. You know, it's it's it goes down easy. And I don't think it's a bad movie, but I also just didn't feel like it was special. Um, it didn't give me any deeper appreciation for the subjects the way that Ed Wood did 
or even like the nature of the creative process and what it means to be a creative person, the way that Ed Wood did. And it also doesn't look interesting. Like Ed Wood has one of the most arch and interesting visual styles. So, you know, not necessarily apples to apples with Ed Wood, but just like as a basis of like, what can you do when you look at someone who is a creative and, and kind of heighten the experience of learning more about that person and why a movie might have been made in certain ways. This doesn't really do that for me. I'm going to give it a, a lower end four, maybe mid four. That is good-ish on our scale. I think by comparison to The Room, which I gave a higher rating, I think I got more out of watching The Room than I did watching The Disaster Artist. So like there is my rating right there. I'm actually kind of surprised you landed on a one for The Room, but I kind of see how you got there, given that you gave a five to plan nine, which to me, they're not exactly the same, but you know, I can see why you come at them from different angles, but yeah. So anyways, I'm, I'm at a four on the disaster artist, Brian, what about you? I will have to reflect a little bit on how I rated plan nine. I feel like my portfolio has gotten kind of heavy with the ones for what it's worth. The room is much less confusing than something like Thomas and the Magic Railroad. I like that the disaster artist exists. As a book adaptation, it's pretty faithful. I would recommend that you track down the audiobook. That's a good experience. I don't like this movie as much as something like Ed Wood. Ed Wood makes me smile. Ed Wood inspires me. This is more of like a, a dour experience, but it I do like seeing behind the scenes. I'm going to give this one a five good and like a middle to high five. I do like watching it. I was, I was glad to have an opportunity to revisit it here for the podcast. And I think the people who were making it were having fun. I mean, this is a bunch of celebrities messing around. Cool to see Zac Efron. Oh, Saul Goodman. Bob Odenkirk is here as like the acting class coach. Once they get to LA, he's the one who says, if you want to get into acting, Tommy, you're going to have to play villains. Cause that's your energy. There's really so many people in it. And that's why it's so fun to watch, even with my misgivings. So if you like the room, if it changes your life and you want to have some context, track down the book. And if you really like the book, track down the movie so i think a, a worthwhile enterprise but not a must see whereas i think we're both on the same page that the room you gotta check it out so that was fun movies about making movies month in the can after so many weeks and dan what is next yeah so the way that this has kind of fallen the dominoes the chips we will next be recording just a couple days before October starts, if not actually after October has started. So we're like really creeping right into spooky season. But I didn't get my start of school high school movie pick, which I usually like to sneak one in there sometime in the fall because the second best genre of movie, the best being end of school movies, the second best is start of school movies. So I thought I would find a movie that kind of scratched both itches, kind of eased us into spooky season, but also gave us some uh, some some high school shenanigans. Brian, have you ever seen the 1996 film The Craft? That's about witches, right? 
Yeah. Haven't seen it. Okay. I think that's what I'm going to pick. I had a, I had a few options, um, but let's watch The Craft. It's a 1996 film. I, I've never seen it either. I don't really know much about it, and I guess we'll find out. It's kind of in the the realm of Idle Hands, where I know some people really like it, and I am curious about it, and so we'll we'll see how how I feel about it. So yeah, Idle Hands was a trip. That was a good find. So I'm excited just to be in Spooky Month all over again. Our fourth one, I think. Crazy. Holy cow, that's crazy. Is it really our fourth? I guess it is. It will be because that's when we started in 2020 was in uh, September going into October. So 2020, 21, 22. Yep. 23 is our fourth. Well, this was fun, Brian. Uh, this episode, this two part episode, this 10 part month, quote unquote month. So thank you for that. And I look forward to continuing to, to podcast. Oh, absolutely. On to New Horizons. Thanks for joining us, listeners. Tune in again. Oh,